Welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement. I am Emiliano Gandolfi, your co-host, and I'm here, as usual, with my co-host, Eric Kessel. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. We are here for the second part of the interview with existing Bazurama, uh, talking about reclaiming public space and how architects can become activists in uh, understanding the use of public space, but also in actually um, occupying uh, space as a way to uh, define different possibilities for the commons to come together. Yeah, I thought that was great last week, how they handled that, you know, the whole idea of uh, occupation really rung out to me personally. And, you know, I'm excited for this interview as well, because we we really do get more into the tactical, into the sort of project level discussions about how they accomplish some of these things. And it's also exciting to hear more about specifically the projects, because in a way, a lot about these groups is about the experience of living in a certain process. So it's really not an architecture based on the final product, but it's really based on the the changes, the emotion and, uh, you know, the uncertainties that happen between uh, architects that live temporarily in, in a space and interact with uh, with the citizens, the neighbors and the people that, that just live in the streets. And you really got a sense of that process and, and their own personal narrative in terms of how each of those practices kind of became aware of the role the public space paid. And, you know, especially their discussion on, you know, the English pub as, you know, a public space with a significant historical legacy, I think was very moving in terms of, you know, everything can be a public space. You know, the nooks and crannies, the street, the pub, the, the public space is really how we define it. Um, and doesn't necessarily need to be limited to, you know, one park in the center of the city. I think it's interesting to mention how we actually choose the Bazurama and Exist for their in- incredible impact. Both uh, were two of the first groups that really started this movement that now is so consolidated about um, on doing uh, temporary projects in public space and self-building with cheap material really to have a maximum impact but also a very strong connection with uh, the, the local population. Bazurama has been very much active in uh, Spain, but also in South America, exists very much in France, but it had a very strong impact also because they work with many young designers that then went on opening uh, new organizations and particularly exist uh, stopped uh, to to be active around uh, two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. And each of their members started other organizations. So some of them went working uh, in in Germany, some in England, some in France. So somehow they also spread their influence and and their impact. So, but let's just listen to the interview and hear what they have to say, what Nicola and Alberto have to say about their practice. Thinking about the occupation of of public space, I guess my next question would be, uh, how does that become formalized? You know, we we do an installation, it can be a six-hour thing or a six-year thing or something like that. Um, How do young designers set about making architecture in such a way that it's actually influencing the more formal systems of the city that govern the organization of public space? That's a tricky one. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we're here. (laughs) Uh, it's, it's been a massive discussion around that thesis these days in Madrid. You know, we had a new government in 2015 that was uh, supposedly spawned or taken from the protests in the streets. It's supposed to be like a grassroots government or something like that. 
And of course, when things that were informal become formal, they always lose energy and power because they close, they, they, they narrow the span of the conversation they can have. Because whenever they become formal, they have to attend to so many standards and other issues that actually embrace them that wouldn't allow that conversation to evolve in a, in a, in a free manner. You know, it has to pay a lot of taxes, a lot of uh, tolls to become formal. So whenever it becomes formal, really goes like uh, more stiff and less free, less crisp, and less free. Right. Alberto, I mean, you, you worked on a lot of projects also internationally. I mean, you even have an office in, in uh, Rio de Janeiro. So you, you actually have been very active in, in South America as well. And even in, in places like Taipei, that is just on the other side of the world. Uh, could you tell us about one project that you think had uh, this uh, uh, political response to what you were proposing and to your way of, of using public space? We are very proud of, of the fact that we learned a lot from Latin America in terms of uh, going informal, you know, not trying to teach them, but learning from them everything. So we, are, we always say that the impact of uh, Latin America uh, in our work made our Spanish work more Latin American. And that is uh, really important. Uh, we have been involved in a number of projects in, in Latin America, especially in Brazil, that have uh, been part of, uh, of the political changes happening around this uh, 2011, 2012 movement uh, global. That for us, more than becoming having a political response, and I will go to Taipei right now, it's not like official political response. In Taipei, in the other way around, officials got closer to our view and they were really trying to refurbish their, their playgrounds because they, they, there is a movement, a shy movement in, in Taiwan, trying to have more natural playgrounds, less prefabricated, you know, more, uh, more lively, more fun playgrounds. And they are, they are trying to implement a project that, that makes the, the playgrounds in Taiwan less, uh, less stiff, less boring. You know? That's like a, a political response. I personally, Basurama likes it a lot, but it's not my, my most uh, interesting. But for us, uh, the most important political response that we have been part of in, in Latin America, in Brazil, in Argentina, in Bolivia, is that a lot of grassroots movements and social movements became aware of the fact that fun and creativity and thinking out of the box is most important. That for us is something that uh, art can achieve and must achieve. We cannot solve solutions, we cannot give solutions to a neglected public space in, in the official terms, you know, in the terms architecture does. Like you have a problem, I will give you a solution. But we have been able to participate in that creativity of that social movements that are really super important. So in Lima, when we did the playground in Lima, all the participants that were uh, basically grassroots artists and indigenous artists, they were really very much aware of the fact that the political fight they were into had more to do with, with the idea of the city or what is the dream you have for Lima than actually resolving problems regarding public space, such as there, are, there is too much traffic and there is not a space for kids. But they have to look at the at the city like i don't know bottom up for example that was something that we participated in with that project and the media was also very much uh, instrumental for that because they didn't get close to the playground and the abandoned bridge a solution but as a provocation and they were again like moved or touched or, or really forced pushed into another conversation about what was happening with the abandoned train it wasn't a question of hey let's solve this problem but what is this problem what are we expecting from that what can we think with this problem? And, and that for us 
has been really like uh, the most important part of our work. But Alberto, in that project specifically, like in many other of your projects, you use also an escamotage, I mean, an entry point, working a lot with kids. That seems an innocent way in, right? We learned from Group Ludic, uh, French playground makers from 1969 to 1979. They did 100 playgrounds in 10 years. And we learned from that that kids are really subversive. We always say about Group Ludic, they did the subversive things the situationists said they were doing. And Group Ludic didn't say anything, but they were really doing subversive things with kids. Because kids cannot be or haven't been absorbed by the system. Like a lot of subversive things from 1968 and the the revolution in that time have been absorbed now by the system but the kids cannot be absorbed because they are too free to be absorbed they they are, have been put in, in house they have been kept in their living rooms they have been kept with play with uh, video games but they are still really like whenever they are on the streets and they make it there they are always uh, subverting things they, whenever they are around really the system is uh, trembling it's not trembling but it's just really like afraid of them so they are very, very, very useful to, to make a subversive thinking, simply working with them like in a, in a regular manner, like taking them as they are, creative, powerful, free, fun. That is like a lot of things that cannot be found in, in many other places. So working with kids is uh, something that always makes uh, things crumble. And working with waste always makes also some cracks and, and sparks some, some thoughts. So I think it's a, it's a nice mixture to, to be you know, coming out of the box and proposing something new. That is true, Alberto. Kids can surely be radical and unconventional. And it is also true that once something is accepted by a kid, it just finds an open door, even if it's just made out of waste. In this way, your work clearly highlights the byproducts of consumerism, while opening to a more playful, engaging and even radical way to look at our cities. We're taking a short break now. Please stay with us to hear more about how Basuraman exists or shaping our public domain. You're listening to Social Design Insights. Stay with us. Welcome back to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We've been on week two of speaking with Alberto Nanclares of Basurama and Nicholas Henninger of Exist, and speaking recently on one of my favorite subjects, architects who start their practices while still students. Let's rejoin the interview and dive back into Dalston Mill. Nicolas, let, let's just go back a moment to the project of Dalston, because I think it's, it's an interesting example of how a project you know, created a, a debate uh, in, in a specific neighborhood. And what is also specific, of think, of your approach is that you've been also building things that are built in a quite simplified way because you're also involving a lot of uh, local residents in, in constructing uh, these, uh, these structures. Is this like a strategy that is uh, uh, a common thread in your, in your practice? Yes, yes. I think that to be able to throw the design, I mean, it starts from a, from a design point of view, and also then the design choose the technique, the material you will use and the way you will use them. That's where you can decide to integrate uh, others or not. That was a, a sort of our late motive from the early project we did as, as a graduating student, was to say that we don't believe that architecture should be a specialized job or work. 
it's uh, everyone should be able to be an architect of this world. So the idea that using scaffolding, working with a lot of uh, joiner carpenter in in existence to join the the group with the same attitude like Alex uh, or Manu and uh, all that, we, where these guys brought their skills, but were looking into bringing construction skills that could be shared with anyone without any specific knowledge or previous knowledge. So when we did a project uh, in the Dolston Mill itself, uh, often the project were abroad. As much as we could, we we found like local people that could uh, that could take part into the construction to help us. Either uh, whether there were some some students or uh, local residents, and later on on this specific project in the Dolston Mill, and then then the Eastern Curve Garden, the Dolston Barn, as we call it, because we we created the barn was to to build this barn with local young disfranchised uh, kids that were from a local organization. So yes, indeed, the fact that uh, nowadays we, we, we always sell architecture and the construction industry as a specialized work, but we know that by the past, in the history, architecture was produced by everyone. Construction, your house was built by your, with your neighbors, with your family. So I guess the architects can learn something from the history of, of the construction. And, and I think that to be able to share this knowledge and to show to people that construction is also a very simple act and powerful act towards a more resilient society, because while everyone can take part into the construction of his own or shape its own environment through architecture, through the construction of space, then you you're a bit more powerful, but we don't have the set of rules to to allow that. That's interesting to think that the future could uh, more resemble the past in terms of this democratic idea of of designing and building. And it was actually one of the things that Emiliano and I were were talking about the interview. You know, during the the neoliberal era, we saw in many places the co-opting of public space for purposes of you know commerce or profit. And, you know, the public square, um, the, the typical public square in many places transitioned from this place of gathering, this place of celebration, this place of meeting, this, this place of culture to a place of commerce, right? It's, it's where you go to shop and, and this sort of thing. And with recent events in the world, you know, Brexit and, you know, the election of Donald Trump and that sort of thing, you know, we're constantly asking ourselves, you know, what is the changing role of the designer? I mean, we've watched an evolution over the last... 20 years as the social designer has emerged as a sort of protest against this neoliberal design culture. With these strong changes, um, what do each of you see as the future of public space and how a designer intersects with that? Wow, I, when, one project I like a lot is the Piazza Italia by Charles Moore in New Orleans. Maybe you have it in mind. Big temple that it's um, split into pieces. It's a super postmodern project from 1970, whatever. It's called Piazza Italia in New Orleans. And it's, it has that uh, Greek uh, temple feeling, but also some water ponds, where, of course, kids play during the summer. It's damn hot, so people have fun there. And basically, the design, from my point of view, 
it doesn't make a big change. You know what I mean? It's, you can have one of those child's move projects or you can have one of those uh, super simple, beautiful projects by Exist. The question is how to how to handle it. As Nick was putting it, what are the, the possibilities we open for communities to participate, either in the design, in the construction, in the enjoyment, and also in the government of public space? We think that public space is owned by the government. That's why Coca-Cola can, can hire a public square to have a commercial there. But it's not. It should be owned by the community. Of course, the fact that the, everyone can participate in the design and management of the public space allows them, empowers them to manage it in a more efficient, in a cooler, in a more intelligent, in a more developed, in a more professional, which is a word that it's diff, uh, difficult to use, but in a more dense manner, you know, like you know how was that built, where is the water coming from, where is the power, where is the door, how is the policeman walking around, how about the public, the real estate. Of course, you know much more about the public space, that it's yours and you can manage it. For me, it's a question of how can we govern or manage or the governance of public space which is the key for the future of public space. What I would say about, like, uh, to respond to this question following to what was said by Alberto, is that, that for me, and I remember, like, each time we were looking for a spot, a space to, to create uh, one of our projects as exists, you know, one, we, we call it a public installation. So for me and for us, well, like, the public space is everything except the square. <laughs> everything except what we describe today as the public space, because at the moment it's just space to for the circulation, to, to go from A to B. It's, uh, it's only the space for commercial purposes. Nowadays, a house, like a, uh, we've seen a car park could have been uh, a better public space. Like the fact of being a public space is the activity rather than the nature of the space. Is so for me, a public space should be something that every council should have is as a undefined a place that nobody owns that we can give to different collectives or to anyone on a short-term lease. You know, so. Let's say every every town, every every neighborhood would have a space. It could be a building. It could be a space they don't know what to do with. But for these six months, it's uh, oh, this young collective of young architects called Exist. Oh, they, they can have it for six months. But after six months, they go away. Someone else can take over. Where this space could be the the, the purpose would be to produce an expected occupation, an expected. Uh, use and uh, create maybe new ideas. This this use could be commercial as well, you know, because nowadays we need to reinvent the world of business, you know, like making more fun. It can be it can be anything. It can be cultural. It can be so any space could be this public space, but it's everything except the square. If the designer have something to do, and not only the designer, any member of the public, because it's a public space should be able to create public space. I just, just for, uh, it was funny, I discovered that when uh, we were doing this project later on in 2012 in London on in Union Street. And, uh, and that time I realized it was like living in London for two years. And I didn't know that pubs, the actual pubs, came as a contraction from public house. And I found it really interesting, the, the idea <laughs> of public house, you know? And so I came back and I kind of learned about this old uh, history of the of the Beer Act of 1860, you know, just to, 
for public health. Like they, they, they were give, giving license to privates to sell beers from their front house. So your sitting room could, could become the public house, was the pub. And I found it really interesting that from a private space was changing the activity where this place became later the cornerstone of a culture, the pub in England. Nowadays, we're losing a bit this, this idea, but, but the idea of public house, he said, that's what we were doing all the time with Exist. We were creating our house and we were opening it up to the public. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great place uh, where to wrap this conversation up because somehow we went from Piazza Italia so to the monumentality of uh, uh, the idea of a public square as a place of representation of a community, but also for a certain level of, of commerce to understanding how, uh, you know, architects can actually uh, take over public space as a place of encounter and create this uh, connection in the idea of a common creation of a different uh, exchange between people. So I really liked when, uh, Nicola, you said that everyone is an architect, so taking from Joseph Boyce, everybody's an artist, and trying to engage uh, a larger population in, in actually empowering, in inventing and imagining alternatives to, to our public space and our spaces of encounter. So I think uh, uh, it's uh, it's a good way to uh, to open up a new possibility of uh, collective imagination of uh, of our you know of our livelihoods. And I think it was just a fabulous idea. This idea of everybody's living room being a pub, and all month long we've been talking about this issue of public space. And I think this was something that we were hoping to discover that it's not discrete, it's not bounded, it's not regulated. It belongs to all of us, and you know how we choose to interpret what is public and what is private in the future is, is really in our own hands. So thank you. Well, guys, thank you very much. I must say that I didn't know exactly what to expect from this conversation, but I think uh, it was extremely interesting. I think that it's difficult to talk about these projects because a key aspect is just to sit you know, with you guys uh, while you build something and to exchange. But it's hard to, to resume that in a conversation that is recorded. But I think... Uh, uh, we succeeded quite well because there's a lot of interesting topics that came out and uh, um, I think it's going to be informative and inspiring, but hopefully for, for many people. I think we pulled it off. I mean, it's, it's such a critical issue and I think, you know, my compliments to you both. I mean, both your practices have been an inspiration in terms of how do we engage public space and especially coming from an American context where public space is so heavily politicized and dominated. Um, I'm just encouraged to see these efforts. So thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We'd like to thank our guests of the last two weeks, Nicholas Henninger of Exist and Alberto Nanglaras of Basarama, for helping us kick off our month-long discussion of design and public space. To learn more about each of these practices, please visit our website at currystonedesignprize.com. There you'll find galleries of their work, narrative histories, and links to further your research. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Currystone Design Prize and the Currystone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all the latest news on social impact design.